Good morning again. Um, we're going to be spending most of our time this morning in this letter to Philemon that Zoe just read for us. Um, Philemon is one of those books in the Bible that if you aren't using a phone and able to scroll to it, you're probably going to need a table of contents. Or this is one of those mornings where Christians are like flipping through and getting nervous and sweating because they think other people are looking at them wondering if they know where books of the Bible are. Look, I ha have had multiple times to take tests about the order of the books of the Bible, and Philemon is still one of those that I get stuck on. So, it's okay. Whatever you need to do to find it, you do that. But if you have access to a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to the letter of Philemon. It is one of the most fascinating and unique books of the Bible. So it's a letter written directly to a lay person in the church, not to a pastor or a leader in the church, but to a lay person. And the topic of the letter is about this person's runaway slave. And Paul doesn't write commanding him to do something, but asking him to do something. It, it's such a beautiful letter. We're going to walk through Paul's letter, and first I'm going to detail the situation um, that created this letter, and then we're going to talk about how it speaks today. So Philemon, the, the, this person that Paul is writing to, seems to have become a Christian under Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. So if you know the letters of the New Testament, Ephesus and Colossians and Philemon are very connected to one another. Colossians, the, the church in the city of Colossae, was started out of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. It's about an hour away. And then Philemon is from the area of Colossae. So somehow he becomes a Christian connected to Paul's ministry in Ephesus as well. Now the good news of Jesus has made this really powerful impact on this person's life, Philemon. The good news uh, being about Jesus' lordship over the world, his death and his resurrection to defeat sin and death, and to bring healing to human beings, to restore us to a new kind of life, and to bring healing to the world. This, all this, this news, this good news has captured Philemon's life, and it's changed him. God's Spirit has worked in his life in a powerful way. He seems to have been a man of means, so now he is hosting a church in his house, and he's known for the way that he loves God's people. So Paul says in verse 7 of this letter that he has had great joy and encouragement because of Philemon's love, and that the hearts of believers have been refreshed through him, through Philemon. So Philemon, again, he's a follower of Jesus whose life has been changed since his conversion, his faith in Jesus. And then at some point, one of Philemon's slaves run, runs away. I want to make sure we catch this. A man whose life has been changed because of Jesus, one of his slaves runs away. I think most of our world today would cancel Philemon. You know what I mean? He's a Christian. How is it that he is owning a slave? 
There's this critique of the Bible that the authors do not do enough to confront slavery. And there is a lot that we could talk about just on this single topic. And if you struggle with this or for some reason you're interested in it, I'd love to have a whole conversation about it in any way you would like. So please find me. I'd love to talk about it. The main thing that I want to say today is that this critique of Christianity, of the Bible, is built on an assumption about how things change in the world. And I don't think it's the way that the Bible authors believe that things change. Here's what I mean. In America, or in the West in general, we think that change happens through earthly political revolution. So in America, we have the American Revolution and the Civil War to prove it. We gained freedom and the, for ourselves, and there was freedom gained for others. But the Apostle Paul and the rest of the writers of Scripture, they're not disinterested in earthly politics, but they are much more interested in the kingdom of God and the politics of the kingdom of God. So this, this does not mean, hear me please, that they don't care about the world. But they do care about the world. But their conviction is that the only kingdom that will solve the problems of the world is the kingdom of God. We need the kingdom of God to come to earth as it is in heaven. So when they're laboring, they're laboring for the kingdom of heaven to come to earth. Now, how does that prioritization work itself out of the kingdom of heaven over the politics of earthly kingdoms? Well, take slavery. Paul seems to think that it will be harder for slave owners to think well of their slaves than it will be to set them free. He could ask them to set them free, but what he asked them to do instead is to love them. Freedom is on the trajectory of loving them. But the thing that is hardest to do is to respect them as they care about them very sel their very selves. So he asks slave owners repeatedly in his letters to think of their slaves with dignity and honor. And that will be a sign of the kingdom to come. Freedom will come as part of that. Paul challenges slave owners... And by the way, the Roman Empire did not have like a north and a south where one part cared, uh, uh, didn't like slaves and the other part did. Uh, one writer says that it was the equivalent of having electric appliances in your home. Everybody had them. And it wasn't race-based slavery. This isn't excusing it. But it was not, we cannot read the Bible through the lens of American history. It's a very different reality. So Paul sees the kingdom of God moving forward, not through earthly political revolution, but as the kingdom of heaven breaks into our relationships, as individuals and communities begin to treat one another with dignity as mutual image bearers of God, of the king. So to put a, a, an emphasis on this, the biblical writers see change happening in the world not through revolution, but through relationship. Your relationships. Every day. With people in your life. Now lastly on this, this letter from the Apostle Paul to Philemon records the only instance we know of where Paul fully applies the good news of Jesus to an instance of slavery. 
So while earthly politics are not his main concern, we have a sense here, a taste of what the kingdom of God is like. It is a place where people who were formerly relating to each other as master and slave are now in a family together and are submitting both of you as slaves of Jesus, another master. So Philemon, he's this changed man. And his slave Onesimus has run away. And after running away, he comes into contact with Paul. Now, this to me says a lot about the Apostle Paul. Somehow, masters and slaves equally find a home in Paul. He can relate to anybody. They both love him. So like his master, Philemon, Onesimus becomes a Christian. He receives the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is the Lord of all people, of masters and slaves, of wealthy and poor. Anyone is welcome as a citizen of this kingdom. You have only to come. And this is a powerful part of the story to me too. Onesimus was a forced slave to Philemon. He was Philemon's property, legal property. But when he comes into contact with Paul, he receives the good news of Jesus, and he becomes a willing slave of sorts. He begins to serve Paul in his ministry to Jesus. Now, Paul would like to keep Onesimus around, but he knows that he has to come clean with Philemon about what's happened. So Paul is actually going to put both Onesimus and Philemon in a really hard spot. Think about this situation. He writes this letter asking Philemon to set free his runaway slave. To view this person no longer as his slave, but as a brother in Jesus, an equal. Imagine how this would work for Philemon. It would make him look very bad to all his business associates. All the slaves in his area would hear about how he set his slave free. Philemon is going to upset the whole system. All the other slave owners are going to be wondering, what are you doing? My slaves are complaining because you set your slave free. The kingdom of God does lead to revolution, by the way. It's just a different kind than the way that the world seeks revolution. But it's not just hard for uh, Philemon. It's also going to be hard for Onesimus. Think about this. He has to confront the master he ran away from. We know from Colossians that this letter comes through the hand of the runaway slave. <laughs> so Onesimus is going to knock on Philemon's door, hand him the letter, run away as fast as possible to watch from a safe distance at how Philemon is going to react to this. <laughs> Do you see how awkward this is for everyone? how much it's going to force all of them to think about what it means and what it costs to follow this new Lord and King, Jesus. Paul is forcing the hand of both of them. At its heart, though, this letter is about reconciliation. Reconciling with people who have wronged you or perhaps, like Paul, it's about helping other people reconcile. Seeing conflict and entering in on behalf of people to help them reconcile one, with one another, forgive each other. 
Now, even though it's not specifically said, it's a letter about what Jesus has done and what that means for us. So, Paul knows that legally, Onesimus would owe Philemon money for his freedom. And he also knows that Onesimus could have stolen money and food, perhaps other things, on his way out. So, Paul, here's the bold move. He asks Philemon to charge it to him instead. Here's what he says in verses 18 and 19. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge what he owes to me. I will repay it. Now that might seem like a small thing, but here's what Paul is doing. He is imitating Jesus. He is acting out between Onesimus and Philemon the exact thing thing that Jesus did for you and for me. So one of the ways that we are to think about Jesus' suffering and death on the cross is that Jesus stood in for us. And he said, whatever he owes you, they owe you, charge it to me. Jesus on the cross reconciles human beings to God, to ourselves, and to each other. Jesus is the only man, the only person who at every turn has done what Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man who has not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners, and has not sat in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Jesus is the blessed one. You see, that psalm is depicting humanity from Adam forward. Adam stood in the way of sinners, the evil one himself, and he developed a pattern of walking in sin and rebellion against God, and that's what human beings do. But Jesus is the blessed one, and in his death, he stands in our place. So picture Jesus on the cross. He's suspended between heaven and earth. And he has his arms outstretched. And even in the physical way in which he died, Jesus is working to bring reconciliation between God and man, between heaven and earth, and also between man and one another in the middle of two other men who are crucified, reaching out, stretching out his arms of love on the cross. Now, I know that now in our time in which we live, slavery has become an abhorrent idea to us. And that is a good thing. The problem is that we're easily blinded to the way that we become slaves ourselves. Slaves to money, slaves to admiration and praise, slaves to lust, and so many other things. One writer said that we are absorbed or enslaved to the endless struggle even to think well of ourselves. And by that he meant we want to think well of ourselves, but we don't even know how. This is where the cross speaks loudly. The method of Jesus' death is no less significant than the death itself. So the cross was the instrument of death 
for a slave. Jesus, the blessed one, died the death of a slave so that he could set free slaves. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah prophesies of the Messiah. When we believe in and follow Jesus, we become free, more and more free. So in offering, again, the price for Onesimus' freedom, Paul, in this relationship, is imitating Jesus' work of reconciliation. Paul is stretching out his own arms of love to grab the hand of Onesimus and to grab the hand of Philemon and to seek to reconcile them as brothers through Jesus Christ. Paul knows that this could come with a cost to himself. And so he says, whatever he owes you, charge it to me. I will pay it. What do we do with this story? Well, the first thing that we do with it is we have to answer the question, are you reconciled to God? Are you reconciled to God? Are you receiving the work of Jesus that is meant to free you from your own slavery? Whatever form that slavery may take. His blessedness is where we're supposed to find our own blessedness. He is the way that we are able to think well of ourselves again. Because we're his beloved. He really does love us despite everything that we do. Everything that we've been. Are you reconciled to God? Are you receiving his reconciliation into your life? Even if you're a Christian, are you in an ongoing way receiving the reconciliation that Jesus offers for you with God? Two, are you reconciled with others? This is a fruit of life in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the tree who was planted by the streams of water of Psalm 1. And we are supposed to be the branches that bear the fruit of Jesus, through which his kingdom comes into the world on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the ways that Jesus bears this fruit is when his people reconcile with one another. So do you need to ask forgiveness of anyone? Is there any way in which you've sinned against someone and you've just been living with it instead of going and doing the hard thing of confessing that and asking for forgiveness? That's a tough thing to do. But it's what Jesus calls you to do. And whether that person is a Christian or a non-Christian, this is something that it's very hard for Christians to do, is go to a non-Christian and say, you know what, I messed up, and I need you to forgive me. But look, this is one of the ways we display the good news of Jesus. All of us are sinners and need mercy. Another way in which you might need to be reconciled with others, are you harboring anger over sin that's been committed against you? 
Sometimes we don't know how to go to someone and confront them about the way they sinned against us. And we want to just overlook it, but instead there begins to be this anger that grows inside of us. And we don't know what to do about it. And we become angry and bitter at them. And we need to do two things. We need to deal with that anger... And we need to discern whether one way we deal with that is going to that other person and admitting to them the sin that's created a rift between you. Third, well first, we need to make sure that we're reconciled to God and live into that reconciliation. Two, we need to be reconciled with others. And three, is there a part that God would call you to play and reconciling others. Is there? This takes lots of wisdom and prayer. Sometimes we insert ourselves into situations where we don't belong. Don't hear me telling you to do that. Other times we avoid situations because we don't want to deal with it. We've got enough problems of our own. You need to pray for the people that you know who are in conflict. And you need to ask God the role that he would call you to play. If that's just praying or if that's confronting in some way. And doing like Paul, reaching out those arms of love to grab the hands of both and seek to bring them together. Even absorbing the cost in some way. Look, I know what they did Accept them as you would accept me. You need to pray about that, and you might also need to talk to another mature Christian to help you discern whether that's something God would call you to do. Now, one last thing on reconciliation, and we'll close. Jesus' work to reconcile us to God cost him a great deal of suffering. And people still rejected him despite all the love that he showed to reconcile people to God. People still reject him. Reconciliation is not cheap, and not all things are reconcilable. And this is a hard reality. Jesus would not have us think of reconciliation merely as everyone getting along with each other and tolerating each other. As one person said about Jesus' ministry, Jesus did not reconcile with forces of evil. He cast them out. He would not have you reconcile with forces of evil. He would have you cast them out. Reconciliation is the result of a struggle against evil. And it's a hard-won struggle. It often comes only through pain, conflict, and in some cases, like that of Jesus's, even death. So if you find yourself in your life doing more casting out of evil than reconciling, or if you're trying to reconcile, but it doesn't seem to be working, Jesus knows. (laughs) And you need to live with him in that place. And walk with him in patience in that place of struggle. The good news and the beautiful news is that when we follow Jesus, even the worst of things always leads to resurrection. The cross, the method of reconciliation, always leads to resurrection. So are you reconciled to God? Oh, he loves you. 
He forgives you, and he wants to be in relationship with you. Are you reconciled to God? Are you reconciled to others? And are you working to help others reconcile to one another? May Lamb be a place of God's reconciling work, of his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.